Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. That's greenlight.com ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Thursday morning, uh, the uh, 31st of August, a bigger pardon. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. New Garda recruits are set to get higher remuneration under recommendations from top management to deal with a crisis in recruitment and retention. Some allowances for all members of the force should also increase and the Irish Times is reporting today that the compulsory retirement age which is 60, is also under examination and that they may increase further to that. The maximum age at which people can join Ungarda Siakana, which is 35 years of age at present, is set to increase. Let's speak to Christy Mangan, former Chief Superintendent in the Louth Mead Division. A very good morning to you, Christy. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, what do you make uh, of of these recommendations, first of all, uh, perhaps you'd address uh, the maximum age that you can join the force. Uh, that's 35 at the moment. They're suggesting that that could increase to 45 years of age, perhaps even 50 years of age. That would seem pretty old to a lot of people. Well, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say pretty old, but it certainly smacks of desperation because for years, you know, there were people looking to join the guard organisation who were over 35 years of age. And they were turned down, um, quite bluntly turned down. So now the organisation is in a, a huge uh, crisis as regards staff retention and recruitment. And, uh, you know, this has been muted before. Uh, it hasn't happened. Uh, and it certainly smacks of what I would say desperation in order to get numbers in, uh, which simply hasn't been happening over the last uh, two to three years. People mm. are not joining the Guard organisation in the numbers they uh, did heretofore. Uh, it, would, it would have probably been to a lot of people, you know, a career uh, that they would have stayed in for uh, for 30, year, 30 plus years, but now people are leaving after two years, three years, uh, 15 years. I've seen people recently leaving, and that's a huge investment walking out of the Guard organisation after 15 years, and, 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 and certainly not good uh, optically. Okay, when I say pretty old, uh, I mean... 
Uh, I'm over 35. <laughs> I don't feel pretty old. Suffice to say, I'm over 35 without saying uh, what age I am. But I don't fancy the idea at my age uh, of trying to run after some young fella in his 20s who's high on crack cocaine. It, it just wouldn't work, I don't think. Well, look at it. Look at you. Have to be very, very agile uh, and 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 have the wherewithal to mind yourself on the streets. Uh, we've seen recently, you know, Gardaí uh, who are well capable and, and able phys- physically to take on people, but they have, you know, received very, very serious injuries while dealing with people uh, in a variety of situations. It's, it's not simple as, as meeting an ordinary person on the street. You're, you're dealing with people who are high in, on, as you said, crack cocaine and a variety of other drugs, including alcohol. And they're intent on getting, having their way, uh, let it be in Temple Bar, let it be O'Connell Street, or let it be Drotted or, or, or Dundalk. And they, they simply want to do what they wish. So if, if you're dealing with that, you want to be physically able to mind yourself and mind your colleagues. And, you know, it, no disrespect to any of us, but the older you, you do get, uh, you know, you, you don't have that ability that you would have had maybe at 25, 35. Um, some people do, yes. We, we all recognise that mm. there are some very, very fit uh, physically fit people who are well into their 50s, 60s and, and, and beyond. But you certainly do need uh, a, a lot of uh, agility uh, in, in order to mind yourself on the street. It's not easy. All right. Some people would say the biggest obstacle to recruits graduating is the fitness test and that it shouldn't be as hard as it is. Uh, would you agree? Uh, I gather not based on what you've just said. No, I, I'd actually completely disagree. Look, the, the fitness tests are set by experts. They're set by people who, you know, have, have set the standard for uh, every guy going into Temple Moor. It doesn't make any difference who they are, what background they come from. And it, there, there's a very important thing people would need to know about the fitness. Sometimes your fitness can save you because you, 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 you have to run away from a situation. You could be met with three or four people with firearms, with knives, with baseball bats. And, and, and the best option then may be to retreat rather, to, rather than, as most guards do, they, they go forward to a, a dangerous situation. So your fitness levels could save your life. And if you have somebody who is not fit and able to deal with a very robust situation, let's say a right situation uh, where there's 50 or 100 people coming at you, and you don't have the wherewithal either to take them on or make a decision to back off, well, then you could end up dead. Mm. So I, I, I absolutely agree with the fitness levels that have to be kept uh, at a certain level. And in fact, there should be fitness tests every year for, for, for all members of Gargi. I was just going to because ask that, you that. that could save their life. Yeah, well, I was just going to ask you that because it's one thing passing a fitness test in your 20s, isn't it? Uh, and then continuing yeah. as a member of the force until you retire at 60. You'd wonder how many 60-year-olds would pass that fitness test. Well, there should be there should be ongoing fitness uh, assessments of, of of all members in Gurdjie Corner because mm. ultimately uh, it could save their lives, and you know that that that's you know we're always trying to protect yeah. people, and we should pr- protect members in Gurdjie Corner who may may not realise that they're not fit enough to do the job they should be doing. Okay, but if there are complaints that it's uh, too hard for people up to the age of thirty five, you have to assume that there's very few people at the age of sixty who would be able to pass the test. And if that's the case, it just seems mad to increase their retirement age. Well, 
you may have a, 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 maybe a different level of fitness test for somebody who's 55, 50 years of age. They may not be out on, on the street dealing with the, the, the difficult situation to maybe maybe making more, more, maybe they're more of a decision maker in, in certain mm. in certain jobs. But there, ha- there should be a certain level of fitness that keeps you safe for certain, for certain. And then it certainly smacks of, of desperation when, you know, this bland statement is put out there. Oh, and, and it's not even, you know, having said exactly what it is, it's just thrown out there in, in the public domain. Oh, we, we may increase it. 35, 45, maybe mm. 50. Well, mm. surely you know what, what age uh, limit you're setting. Yeah. And, uh, it's, and one, then, it's one thing for an older guard uh, who's been in the force for 20, 30, 40 years, as the case may be, uh, and may have a, a desk job uh, and are entitled to that, if you like, because of their experience. Uh, but you couldn't see a, a, a situation... Uh, that would be conceivable where a new recruit would go to a desk job at 50 years of age, would you? Well, it, would, it absolutely shouldn't happen because our, our commissioner has said uh, for a long time he has introduced uh, a policy of civilianisation. So there should be no desk jobs for any guards. Uh, everybody should be out and about. And that, 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 So the person who's coming in 45, 50 years of age can be, can be coming in with the expectation that they're going to be caught put into a, a, a soft, comf, comfy job in a guard station, that's not going to happen. They're going to be out and about. They're going to have to be out dealing with violent situations on the street. Those jobs are not there. Uh, there's been a large amount of uh, post-civilianised and there's been much debate about that within a guard economy, but it has happened. So you suffer the consequences out, you're out and about, and you deal with the, what, what you're paid to do, it, and that's to, to deal with the volatile situations on the street. And, that, and that, that's... That's the, blind, uh, the the reality of the situation. Mm. Uh, the world has changed quite a, a lot and people used to leave school at 15, 16 or 17, 18 uh, and go on to their chosen profession. This is uh, a point uh, which senior guard management seem to be making according to this article in the Irish Times today. Uh, it's not the case anymore. People go on to college, uh, they're leaving education much older in life uh, and they're looking at other options uh, because of their education and so on, and that's feeding into the problem. Would you agree with that? Well, look, if, if you're, look, let's say you're, you're a person, male or female, you're, you're 30 years of age, and the opportunity arises to come join Agar Shikana. Now, I, I would always recommend to join the, the organisation. I, I, I enjoyed it. But if, if you look at it in reality, you've been asked, and let's say you have a mortgage, you have a car loan, you're in a relationship, you might have uh, children, and then you're living in Kerry, Limerick, Donegal, or wherever part of Ireland you're living in, and you're going to be asked to go to Templemore for 33 weeks for €184. Euros. Mm. So the maths would say that it won't cover your, your, your outgoings. And then you're looking enough to get through the system, and you're told you're going to Dublin, and you're going to start on about €34,500 uh, a, mm. a year. Your family won't be in a position to move up to Dublin, but you're, yet you're expected uh, to work in Blanchestown city centre and uh, pay for accommodation in Dublin all on that very, very basic wage. It's not going to happen. So when people are looking at their options, let it be in Ireland or let it be in Australia, unfortunately at this point in time there are far more attractive options financially for them than there would have been heretofore. That, that, that is uh, the stark reality with the, 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 the paying people to go to Templemore for 184 euros and I don't know how anybody survives on it. Okay, they may have a, a small uh, 
built up uh, their, their few euros in savings. But that will go fairly, fairly quickly. Mm. So, well, you, know, you think it's about it, it's not as attractive. It's less than the dole. Uh, 184 yeah, uh, how how can anybody live off uh, 184 euro uh, and that's for pretty much eight months uh, now they're talking yeah. about I- increasing that but even at that as you say then you go on to a starting salary of thirty four and a half thousand and it takes eight years to get to the maximum which is fifty three thousand yes and the 184 euros a week Michael has been highlighted to Garda management has been totally inadequate for the last number of years and nothing has taken place to make it more attractive for people to come in. And that's why we are at, at this sudden impasse. People people are not coming in, uh, not joining the, the organisation in the droves that they would have done in, in years gone by. So, you know, that's that's an unfortunate fact of life. You know, you, you know there's lots of people who have joined and then have sought career breaks. Uh, and, and that was, you know, in, in all organisations, career breaks happen. But uh, of late, um, you know, I've, I've heard of cases where people have been refused the career breaks and they've simply said, right, I'm off, I'm gone. And go, and then what goes with them is the huge investment that has been made in Templemore. And Templemore is, you know, a fantastic training facility, puts a lot of work into the guard of probationers. And then they're sent out and they're trained on the street. They're trained with very, very experienced, good, good uh, inspectors and sergeants. Trained up to a very high standard, and that thing because of somebody making a decision, I'm not going to give this person a, a year career break. Mm. They may come back. They may come back. They may come back in two years' time, and I think it would be far better if they were going to be coming back to rather than saying I pull the plug and all that investment is out the door and gone. You're retired now, of course, and uh, I spoke to you recently about the book you've published, uh, which looks back on your career cracking the case. And I think anybody who reads your book will know that it's always been a hard job uh, and that Gardaí have always been uh, assaulted. Uh, and indeed, uh, you've been assaulted on a number of times uh, and... Uh, I don't know uh, if that's always been the case. I would imagine it is, and I imagine it will always be the case. But is it worse? Is it harder? Is it more violent now than it was before? And does something need to be done to address that? Because we're told that that is one of the reasons why so many people are leaving the force. Well, look, at it. when you're dealing with people in, in difficult situations, that would be, you know, you're carrying out a, a large-scale search or you're dealing with... Uh, you know, a riot situation in whatever town or, or city you're in, there is going to be a level of violence. You are going to get, you are going to unfortunately have guards who are going to get assaulted. And, and it's, it's, it's a feature of, of life, unfortunately, all over the world for, for police forces. People, you know, they, they're, they're high on drugs or, you know, they, they want to achieve a certain aims. So they will, they will, you know, they'll exert physical violence on the guards. So that, that has happened since the organisation was established. Um, is, is it worse? Well, I, what I would say is it, it appears to be a lot more publicised than it, than it was heretofore. Um, when, look at, when I was assaulted, it wouldn't have made any headlines. Uh, you know, you, you, you got a bloody nose, you got a, a sore ear. But there, there is, from the, some of the cases I've read over the last couple of weeks, there is a huge level of, of, of violence against guards, uh, very bad assaults, and that has a huge knock-on effect, not alone for the guards in, in the organisation and their families, but it certainly has a huge knock-on effect from people thinking, uh, considering joining the guard organisation mm. and 
you know, should should they go for, um, I'm not saying a cushier job, but a, a job where you won't get beaten up in, uh, where you get more money um, and maybe better prospects. Uh, I, you know, if if you're sitting down and you're, and you're doing the maths, well, then people, you know, they'll, they'll say, right, I, I'll take the maybe what what could be considered the easier employment rather than going in dealing with um, difficult people on, on, a, on a very regular basis. And, and that's that's what you're joining. You're joining an organisation that, uh, you know, when you're meeting people who are not at their best, they're not uh, they're not um, going to be offering you cups of tea mm. or, you know, uh, smiling at you all the time. Mm. There is going mm. to be very difficult situations. No, and you have was, to make very yeah. difficult decisions. It's the nature of the work. Uh, but yeah. do, you, do you think that uh, at times... The representative associations are egging it a bit, over-exaggerating uh, the problem. Uh, you're you're not long retired, uh, and I'm sure that uh, you're in constant contact uh, with uh, your colleagues. Um, how is morale? Well, I, 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 I'll answer your first question first uh, about the representative associations. I, I put one, in all levels of, of management that, that I operated in the Gardaí the representative associations were very, very professional, highly professional. And in my last posting in Loud, I would have dealt with the representative associations. They come into my office, uh, simply laid out on the table, these are the, these are the difficulties we're having. Um, and I, I, I absolutely utmost respect for the work to do on behalf of the membership. You know, they're, they're trying to achieve what's best for their membership, the, the, you know, the terms and conditions of their employment. And in all of my dealings, they were never unreasonable to me. Uh, and in fact, we came to a lot of compromises. And when you're dealing with, you know, in, in all organizations, but a large organization, within, we, you, you have to have a lot of compromise. And the difficulty I see at the moment is there's going to be a huge amount of goodwill lost. Goodwill is hard to build up, but you lose it in a heartbeat. And I think the goodwill is, is been lost uh, on a daily basis with the guardy on the street, um, if, if, if you're ramming down your own mantra uh, down their throats all the time uh, without any compromise, goodwill will be gone. And, and I suppose an example of what I mean by goodwill is if, if three, 3 o'clock in the morning, you know, as a chief superintendent, you get a call, there's some outrage after taking place. Immediately, we're ringing guards to come in, get up out of your bed, 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, come in. You may be in here for you know, 15, 20 hours, but you're, you're, I want you to come in. 99% of them will come in. But if you've lost that goodwill, the phone won't be answered and they won't come in because there's no obligation on them to come in. Mm. They're, they're, they finish their tour of duty. But uh, normally a guard will always come in and I, I fear that we're losing the goodwill from the guard on the street and if you lose that, well then you, you will lose a lot of dedicated officers. Uh, and, and that's, then feeds in to morale uh, absolutely been at, you know, from members I, I, I speak to, you know, they're, they're absolutely fed up. Um, they, they, they don't see support for them there uh, in, in certain circumstances. Um, and, and, and that's, you know, unfortunately a fact of life at the moment. Uh, there, there, there needs to be a complete relook at how to build back up the goodwill and to raise the morale. Morale is very poor, I, and, and I know that from talking. I only spent, I spent an hour with mm. a, a member yesterday dealing with a matter for uh, helping them out in a matter, and you know they're telling me it. So I, I have to believe what that person says to me because they're a good, honest person. Um, it seems as though 
to me at least, we're heading into a, a, a number of crises, uh, a political crisis and a policing crisis. There is no doubt that we're living in unprecedented times, given that Angarda Síochána is a disciplined force, but the members of the Garda Representative Association are are voting on a a motion of no confidence in the Garda Commissioner. Uh, I don't know, I could be wrong, I, I think they're going to vote no confidence in the Commissioner. If that is the case, it would seem to me that the Commissioner's position is no longer tenable. It would also seem to me that the Commissioner will try to stay in his position and that the Commissioner will be backed by the Minister and if that is the case, that will call the Minister's position into question and indeed it'll cast a a shadow over the current government. Is it that serious in your mind? Well, unfortunately it is that serious. Uh, You know, I I would have spent 40 years in the Guard organisation and in all the Commissioners I served under I, I, I never remember a, a vote of no confidence been taking, taken in any of them. Uh, certainly there was disputes, uh, disagreements over certain matters and they were resolved. And, you know, it, from looking here, it, it, you know, you have you've two sides who have decided to, uh, you know, they're at loggerheads as regards the rosters and, and other matters. And, you know, the rosters is a very serious issue uh, for every guard in in the organisation. And, you know, look, a lot of the emergency services went above and beyond uh, in, in the pandemic and worked right through it uh, to make sure that the, the country could actually function, uh, make sure that people could be safe, uh, you know, at best they could, dealing with a, such, a, such a serious situation. And... You know, now, now they've been told you're going back to the old roster, and, and that's it. And you know, from for a number of years, we've been always told to adhere to the Garda decision-making model, and it's about gathering information and assessing threats and taking action reviews and reviewing. And I don't know whether some people are actually adhering to the, the decision-making model themselves, because you know it, it's been allowed to become this debacle uh, where one side is is uh, calling for a vote of no confidence in, in the leader of an organisation and it certainly is unprecedented but people who are making their decisions now will have to, will have to explain them at some stage uh, as to why they decided to go down this course of action and you know, I, I, I'd like to hear from the, 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 the Chief Superintendent's Association and the Superintendent's Association they're all senior management, what do they think of it? Uh, it doesn't seem to be a a lot in in the public domain about what their thoughts are, and we we see a huge amount there from you know Agsy, and we see a huge amount from the GRA. Tara McManus was clearly explaining to you yesterday her position on all the matters, and uh, you know seemed to be an extremely reasonable viewpoint coming across there as regards what what she saw about it, and and, and, and unless they're at the table uh, trying to resolve the dispute. It will cause untold damage to industrial relations within the Garishikan and then has a massive effect on morale. And people coming out saying that there is no problem with morale, I, I would say to them, listen, please go back and look at it. Go out and talk to the guards in the street. Go into guard stations at, at 3 o'clock in the morning. Don't be popping in at 7 o'clock in the evening uh, when, when the guards are out and about. Go 
go out on the beat with them at three o'clock in the morning and you'll see how difficult it is. Okay. Well, I think people heard loud and clear one of uh, the most uh, respected members of uh, the four speaking on the programme this morning. Thank you for your comments and for joining us today. Thank you, Michael. Christy Mangan, former Chief Superintendent in the Louth Meath Division. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. A lot of people in touch with us already today. Great to be getting so many comments and thanks if uh, you're one of uh, the people who has been in touch. Uh, WhatsApp from Deirdre who says, Michael, I thought you had to be 18 to join the Gardaí. Uh, I'll tell you something, it's not an easy job. They have their hands full. Yes, I, I think that's right, Deirdre. Uh, it's uh, a pro- a big burden, a proposal that you'd be no older than 35 that we're talking about today. John in touch saying, I'm laughing here listening to uh, the former chief superintendent talking about the fitness test to join the guards. A lot of them, five to ten years into the job, wouldn't be able to run as far as the chipper. <laughs> Thanks, John. I think that's tongue-in-cheek. Uh, we'd Helen in touch in King's Court. She says, my 19-year-old son applied for the guardie on the last round of applications, flew through the first three online rounds, but he's been waiting months for the fitness callback. Thanks uh, for that as well. Helen, uh, and uh, we'd Paddy Duffy in touch. She says, how about giving the guardie a substantial pay increase, more commensurate with the job that they have to do, then maybe the retention problems and the new application problems will rectify themselves. Betty Daly says, Michael, about being too old to be a Garda, how come a judge can stay at his job even though he can't make a right move when he's passing a sentence that's too soft for a crime that a felon is given? Thanks uh, for that, Betty. I think there's a big difference um, in coming to a judgment than running after a young fellow who's high on crack cocaine. Pat C says one of the biggest obstacles to recruitment at the present time is that the whole recruitment process has been outsourced and it has become a long arduous process. Many young people are very keen to join the force but find the whole selection so drawn out that the process and the background checks should be uh, faster. It should be a speedy process so that you can join uh, the wages for new guardie is sad, says Pat C. Uh, somebody else uh, saying arm the guardie on the street so that they can deal uh, with some of these thugs. Um, we'd uh, a couple of comments uh, that I didn't get to yesterday. We'll be talking about the new boundaries again a little bit later with Gavin Riley and uh, we'd uh, somebody else in touch uh, who said, uh, "I'm just wondering if the existing TDs will take a pay cut." and cut their expenses in order to pay for the new 14 TDs. Wonder if the Constitution give uh, a directive on wages. Uh, Thank you indeed uh, for that. Um, uh, the freedom of Drogheda, the brother Edmund Garvey affair, Paddy Duffy says, these councillors who don't want to comment, who are saying no comment, need to remember that the local elections aren't far off. Thanks, Paddy. We'll be uh, talking about that a little bit later on. One of those uh, councillors who says no comment is Declan Power. Tom in touch saying Declan Power has to wait for Kevin Callan to tell him what to vote, what way to vote. Uh, thank you indeed, uh, Tom. Thanks to everybody who's been in touch. Our phone number is 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 086 Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. I think it's hard to believe, but uh, about 10% of meat is thrown out. 
dreadful, an awful waste. Sinful, you might say, but that's the way it is. Uh, but does it matter? It's probably a, a good thing in some ways uh, because red meat is very bad for you. Uh, the Environmental Protection Agency has made this point and suggested that people cut down on the amount of red meat that they eat in order to be healthier uh, and have suggested uh, that you do it slowly. Maybe think about having veggie lunches. Uh, that's not so bad, by the way. That could be a cheese sandwich, but a, a veggie lunch or a meat-free Monday. Uh, that could be a pizza. But a, a meat-free Monday or a veggie lunch uh, and then think about it and maybe cut down altogether or cut it out altogether. That was the advice uh, of uh, the Environmental Protection Agency in a tweet that has since been deleted as it became the subject of much criticism. Let's speak to Sive O'Neill of Stop Climate Change. She's the group's coordinator. Uh, a very good morning to you, Sive, and thanks for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. What are your thoughts on red meat? Well, I'm not actually a vegan myself, and I'm not even, strictly speaking, a vegetarian. I eat very small amounts of red meat occasionally, and I could live without it, frankly. So they are my personal thoughts. But what's going on here is that the EPA has, in recent years, um, embarked on social media campaigns. They cover a lot of issues, waste management, recycling, water quality, and they're targeting individuals on social media trying to encourage environmentally friendly behaviours. So this post is not out of the blue. They have posts like this coming out all the time and they're quite active on social media now. And it's something that I, as a member of the EPA's advisory committee, have, have, have welcomed because the more engagement they do with the public in these kind of more modern fora, uh, the better. Uh, it's just about increasing environmental awareness. So for me personally, there was nothing extraordinary about that uh, post at all. They mm. were only um, highlighting the scientific evidence that meat is the most carbon intensive form of food. Now that includes when you factor in the, the farm level emissions, the environmental impacts, and also the transport emissions. Uh, so the whole supply chain. And it works out at something like 60 kilograms per kilogram of meat, 60 kilograms of carbon dioxide equivalent per kilogram of meat, which is a huge amount of greenhouse gas emissions. So beef um, is about twice as carbon intensive as the next food on the list, which is lamb, which in turn is about twice as carbon intensive as plant-based proteins such as soya or, or, or legumes. So, you know, this is something that a lot of people are aware of now that, you know, they've heard it in different ways that that meat is bad for the climate in a way and that it's not something that we have to give up completely. Mm. But if we want to limit our personal carbon footprint, it makes sense to cut back on the red meat we eat. Mm. And there is clear health benefit to that. Well, so that's what I was going to say before yeah, you get to the, yeah. <laughs> to the health concerns or the health benefits. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so the health side of it is also very well established. Um, the um, Irish Climate and Health Alliance have recently published a very comprehensive report looking at the environmental and health impacts of our diets. And their, their um, report is extremely nuanced and highlights that the greenhouse gas impact of the typical Irish diet exceeds planetary boundaries by a staggering 226%. Now, that's more than just meat. Mm. That's the typical Irish diet. But it just shows you that what we eat has a big impact on the climate. And the other thing that I learned, which I think goes against what we imagine to be the case, 
is that cutting back on meat is even better for the environment than eating locally produced food. Mm. So one of the arguments that's made, and I understand the argument, you'd think that a farmer raising beef, you know, producing milk really close to you, that that has to be environmentally friendly because there's so little in the way of transport emissions. But the reality is that the carbon emissions from the production of the meat and dairy is so high that the transport emissions are, are less relevant. And it's you know, it's just mm. it's just a very difficult message for, for people to hear. Not mm. necessarily meat eaters, because they kind of generally just do what they want. And, yeah. you know, people are modifying their diets. People are uh, making changes. You can see the rise in mm. vegetarianism. You can see the rise in interest in plant-based food and all the new types of um, plant-based, you know, meat substitutes that are available in supermarkets. Mm. And they're very popular. Well, well there's very but, little but the difference with a lot of them. Mm. It's just, mm. The problem is that this messaging doesn't land very well with farmers. So when the EPA published mm. this post, they uh, had a very negative reaction from, from some quarters. And, you know, that, that some of that is not necessarily anything that you'd worry about. Like, people are entitled to react. It's just a social media, like, no harm done. Mm. It's no big deal. It's only a tweet. But what really exercised some of us in the environmental and climate movement... Well, you've just made all of the arguments that you could possibly think (laughs) of to reduce the national cattle herd, Uh, so no wonder there was a strong reaction. Yeah, well, we we have a lot of concerns about the environmental impact of the Irish agri-sector in general, but this was different because this is where the IFA was able to lean on the EPA and not only demand that the tweet be deleted but that they secure a meeting with the EPA about this. So um, for, for those of us who work in the sector, you know, advocating for climate action and environmental protection, this seemed like an extraordinary move on the EPA's part to just cave in to that demand. Now, I know Laura Burke has said that, ah, it's a nuanced issue and blah, blah, blah. You know, we have to sort of listen to farmers and, you know, maybe there was a better way of communicating the message in the social media post. But that's no big deal because you can delete them and replace it with something that's more appropriate. But what I'm afraid of is that the EPA will now be unwilling to, um, in its messaging to the public, um, communicate that very clear point that reducing your consumption of meat is good for your health and good for the environment. Mm. Yeah, uh, you didn't mention how long it takes to digest uh, red meat. Uh, it can take days. Uh, uh, you didn't mention what that can do to your weight, your cholesterol, uh, <laughs> your heart, uh, how it is said to be carcinogenic. Uh, and I don't think the tweet mentioned that. Uh, but you believe uh, that the EPA is being told by the IFA what to do. So what next? Well, the, the worry that I have is if the EPA is prevented from clearly communicating this dietary sustainability recommendations, now bearing in mind that they're communicating lots of other environmentally friendly behaviours to us, like, you know, get on your bike, walk more, plant trees, whatever it is. Um, but if, they, if, if we take this logically, by the same rule, they shouldn't be giving advice to the public about shifting away from cars to cycling or walking because of the environmental and health benefits. And that would obviously be a ridiculous conclusion. So um, we, we, we simply can't allow this kind of, I don't know if censorship is too strong a word. I think the farmers are extremely exercised by any portrayal of what they produce as being harmful or negative. And sometimes there's a bit of overreaction because 
the science behind the EPA's tweet, even if you didn't like the style of it or the, the way it was put together, is really well founded. Like, there's no arguing with it. Uh, there is a complete con- scientific consensus around this. It's, it's, it's there in Irish reports, it's there in Lancet studies, and it's there in the IPCC reports. So there's no point trying to fight the science and the truth. What we have to do is learn to talk about it in a way that isn't so extreme, where we're not demanding that things are deleted, but we debate them. Okay. And that's a healthy thing for society. All right. I have to leave it there, Saif. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Saif O'Neill is uh, the coordinator of uh, the Stop Climate Change Group. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. John WhatsApping us uh, saying, where's uh, the sense in culling the national herd in Ireland when we'll end up importing meat from Brazil? They're clearing forests in preparation for the surge in meat exports from Brazil. John says this is madness. Tom says, Michael, am I wrong in saying there's uh, a lot of vegan foods here like soya that come from California and South America and how do they get here? I'm sure uh, your parents perfectly correct Tom but there's an awful lot of vegetarian alternatives that are not soya Uh, there's uh, quite a a range uh, uh, that are very very popular now and are mushrooms in whatever way uh, they manipulate them uh, but very very popular as I say Uh, we'd uh, somebody else in touch saying Michael just a quick question who decided that we need more TDs do we get to vote uh, on increasing the number of TDs in the doll? Can we afford another 14 TDs or are all of the ministers and TDs going to take a cut in their pay to facilitate this increase? Thank you indeed for your message. Well, let's speak uh, to Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News and a columnist with uh, the Mead Chronicle. Uh, good morning to you, Gavin. Thanks uh, for joining us. I think uh, it was a man called John Hearn, who was legal advisor to the Department of External Affairs, what we'd call Foreign Affairs now, who drafted the Constitution. It was overseen, supervised by De Valera. And the point in mentioning that is that it's not anybody today who decided that we need more TDs. It's a constitutional requirement and that is because the population has increased and we need one TD for every twenty to 30,000 people in the country. Is that correct? Yeah, spot on. That's basically it. The constitution, effectively, sometimes its role is almost forgotten, but it's basically the national rule book. You can't introduce any law that doesn't meet the requirements of the constitution. And as you say, the constitution says that there has to be one TD, one member of Dáil Éireann, on average, for every twenty to 30,000 people in the country. And when you simply look at the increase in the population in the state for the last couple of years, like the census in in April of 2022, put the population at 5.13 million people. That's compared to uh, 4.7 something million people at the same one in 2016. And when you have an increase of almost 400,000 people uh, in six years, that means that you simply are required by law to create more positions in Dáil and so that uh, your average person in one year uh, still has the same uh, relative number of TDs and all can represent them as they do in any other year. So mm-hmm. although there are some listeners this morning who are going, why do we need these more TDs? Why, are we, why aren't we voting to get rid of this and all of this? Uh, the, another way to think of it is six years ago, or even, even go further back, if you've got listeners who are listening now who are in their 50s, when they were born, uh, they were part of a country of 3 million people that had 160-something members in Dole Aaron. Now they're part of a country of 5 million people 
and they've still got 160 members of Dáil Éireann. They are, relatively speaking, less represented now than they used to be. And the idea mm. of creating new positions in Dáil Éireann is to try and balance that out to make sure that there still is roughly the same number of people in the Dáil to represent the growing number of people who live here. But there is an option, isn't there? Uh, we don't actually have to increase uh, the number of uh, TDs. Uh, we could decide to hold a referendum and amend the Constitution to take out that clause or to change it. Uh, We could, uh, and to be honest, I foresee that happening at some point in the next decade because we are entering now something of a spiral where the population is going to keep increasing by about three or 400,000 every couple of years, and that's going to mean that you're going to have to be adding the equivalent of two or three new seats in Dáil Éireann basically every year to keep up. And at some point, they're going to hit a limit and someone is going to have to try and propose uh, amending the Constitution to try and put a cap on that. But no, in the meantime, um, that, that is as it is, there are no plans, formally speaking, for a referendum. Uh, the Electoral Commission is going to go away and then look at the, the idea of researching whether it's possible effectively to put a cap on the number of people that there are in the Dáil and to try and work within that. Mm. Uh, but one thing that's worth noting is that if, if people think that it would ultimately save money, it would, yeah, it would probably save money in, in the long term if you were to have a referendum them and just put a cap on it. But if you consider what's happening now, 14 new TDs, each of them is entitled to two members of staff. Altogether, they'll probably all earn around uh, 2 million euro or uh, €200,000 a year between the three of them. Um, if you multiply that by 14, you're basically spending around 2 or €3 million euro a year on wages for new people working in Leinster House. The cost of holding a standalone referendum is something in the region of €15 million. Euro. So oh. <laughs> the cost of these new politicians over five years right. is about the same as the cost of changing the rules to get rid of them. OK, I think it was Margaret who asked that question. Thanks for your WhatsApp message, Margaret. But let's get to the most important question of the day. Who's going to take this for- Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. Fourth new seat in Mideast, do you think? I've heard a few different theories. Uh, I've heard the prospect that if Sinn Féin really do have designs on power, that they will expect the likes of uh, the, the incumbent TD there, Darren O'Rourke, they're going to expect him to sort of bring home a running mate because if Sinn Féin do have designs on trying to come back with 60-something TDs and to really be the building block of a new uh, majority, they're going to need that. Um, I've heard some suggestions that 
well now that Regina Doherty has you know formally and irreconcilably moved out of the territory and isn't going to be coming back I've heard suggestions that Fine Gael would have great, great aspirations for Sharon Toland to try and have again one TD at either end of the constituency and they certainly feel like if it were possible for them before to have two seats out of three they don't believe that two seats out of four is at all impossible. Uh, I've heard some suggestions that Thomas Byrne might be under some pressure to try and bring home a running mate next time. And then, of course, you've got others knocking around the constituency, the likes of uh, Senator Sharon Keoghan, who, as we all remember, uh, was able to win seats in two different districts for the local elections uh, four years ago, uh, was not a million miles away from getting elected to the Dáil last time. Uh, certainly has a higher profile now, uh, whether that will argue in favour or against or it remains to be seen. But there, there's, there's a lot of people, runners and riders, and I think what, one of the things that's interesting is that depending on who you talk to in Enster House, they all think that they all have some designs on that extra seat, that none of them are going around thinking, oh, that's Sinn Féin's to lose or that's Fine Gael's to lose. They all see it as a little bit of a battle, and they all think that if the ball were to bounce their way, they could take it. So they're all going to be going pretty hell-for-leaded then to come and try and claim it when the time comes. OK. Uh, you're not going to guess yet? I'm not going to guess yet, though. Okay. <laughs> many, many to sit between code and lay back. But on, mm. on that note, actually, because a lot of it will depend on when the next general election might actually be held and, and whose wind is at who's back at the time. One thing I think is very curious is that I, I heard two different government sources yesterday, one of whom said, you know what, there's a good argument now for going for a general election before the local elections, because bear in mind, if you want to have a majority in Leinster House, you're going to need to have a majority in the Shannon as well as the Dáil. The Shannon is mostly elected by councillors, and if you allow the local elections to happen first, you'll have swathes of Sinn Féin councillors, and then it's going to be very difficult to get the, the existing government to keep seats in the Shannon. So some people think, let's have the election now, before uh, the Shannon composition changes. Other people think, let's wait until the local elections, let's allow Sinn Féin to have their day, let's basically take our beating that we know mm. we're all going to get, and let's create a false sense of security among Sinn Féin voters that they'll believe the general election is already sewn up, and they might not even bother then running the same energetic campaign that they would in other circumstances. So, depending on who you ask, mm. the election could either be very imminent, or it could be long-fingered for as long as possible, and, th- and that in turn will influence who might be in the shake-up for that fourth seat. Good Lord. Uh, winning the next uh, election uh, will be very different. The rules have changed. Uh, you need uh, a much bigger majority. You need uh, 87 TDs. Yeah, because we're not going to have a chamber now of 174. And if you take away the count quarter, that means 173. That means that you're going to need to have 87 to have a majority. And, and on, on paper, the, the big question is, if you presume Sinn Féin are going to be the main ingredient in the next coalition, really the question is, Will Sinn Féin win seats at the expense of those who they might like to deal with, other parties on the left, the likes of uh, the Social Democrats, the likes of People Before Profit, or or will they win these new extra seats and still save all those people who might be of like mind who could govern alongside them in the future? Uh, And that's really kind of what, what the interesting thing about these new seats will be. I heard one analysis yesterday that Sinn Féin could conceivably win 12 of the 14 new seats that have been created. And if they win those seats, but they don't take out everyone from people before profits. They don't take out all of the soft ends. You know, they might even be able to work with the Greens because the Greens still do have a leftist wing within them. And it's possible that they might be able to cobble together those big numbers. But possible doesn't mean probable. It's probably less likely than more. And that's going to mean then, well, if you're able to have Sinn Féin coming back with something in the region of 60 seats and you need to make it to 87 what other options do you have? You might have to govern with one of the big two that are there currently right now. And Fianna Fáil are maybe the more likely people who are prepared to do business in that light. But one thing I did also hear uh, being expressed yesterday is that 
um, you know, you can't presume that everyone elected for Fianna Fáil at the next election would be comfortable doing a deal with Sinn Féin. You know, there might, there might be some shared Republican ideals in there, but there's also, of course, Sinn Féin's more recent history that many in Fianna Fáil still can't reconcile themselves with. So if you were looking at trying to pull together 87 in the next chamber, if it's going to be Sinn Féin and Fianna Fáil, to be honest, you might need those parties to have 90-plus TDs between them because there will be a few in Fianna Fáil who would rather walk out than do a deal with the devil as they see it. So uh, you might you might ultimately need to price in a few defectors along the way, and that means that Fianna Fáil and Sinn Féin together might need to be 90 seats plus if they're to build a coalition that can stand the test. All right. Is anybody concerned uh, about uh, the standard of representation following on from uh, the next general election because of uh, the increase in the number of TDs? Will there be enough candidates or will we have people... Uh, who really know nothing about nothing standing under a, a banner because there's an opportunity there for a political party. Um, it's a it's a slightly cynical take. I don't know whether it's your own take or whether you're reading out a message. But it, it's a slightly pessimistic or a slightly cynical take because that 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 would imply that, for example, Samuel, whoever gets the fourth seat now that's been created in me, that that implies that whoever came fourth in the last election uh, would not have made for a good TD and that they were, it was only right they'd be squeezed out of the last minute. I mean, I, I always think that there are plenty of people, plenty of whom are, are councillors or are members of the Shannon, or people who currently don't hold any elected office at all, who might make for good public representatives, who do care about their areas, who do want to see mm. change uh, in their areas for the duration of, of public services and change the direction of the country. Uh, I wouldn't be too pessimistic about the standard of people who are now going to plump it out. I mean, in, in truth, there, there are many great people in the Dáil. There are many great people in the Shannon who would also be great in the Dáil. There are many people in the Dáil who are already pretty useless anyway. Uh, so, you know, th- there's no reason to think that the extra 14 seats that you're creating or the extra one from East is going to be a lame duck or going to be a bit of an empty shell. There's every prospect of them being a, a good and aspirational and reliable public servant just as much as there is of them being a bit of a clown. So, okay. yeah, we're going to see. Right, well, I'm not sure all of our listeners would agree with you, Gavin. <laughs> <Do> you, <laughs> you, you, you might have a, a different take on it reading some of the messages. Another 14 Muppets stander, that's how somebody <laughs> says. <laughs> Yeah. I, I feel like if you write them off too early, even if you start getting too pessimistic too early in the day in my job, then by the end of the day, all you want is a dark room and a bottle of whiskey. I feel like you have to, try and, <laughs> oh, have to try and look in the yeah. right side to figure out you wouldn't be able to get through the day. OK, I'm glad you stopped that turn of phrase at the bottle of whiskey. Thank you yeah. indeed for joining us. Uh, I think Bertie O'Hearn was somebody who got into an awful lot of trouble about saying something along those lines a long time ago. But thank you, as I say, Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News and columnist with uh, The Mead Chronicle. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. Now, next Monday, 10 councillors in Drogheda will vote on whether to rescind Brother Edmund Garvey's Freedom of Drogheda Civic Honour or not. Uh, We've some indication of how some councillors are thinking and we've no indication of how some other councillors are thinking. Uh, As you know, up to this point, Uh, We've had a number of people uh, who've refused to to make any comment on this. We contacted Kevin Callan, an independent councillor, about this. He said no comment. We contacted Declan Power, an independent councillor, about this. He said no comment. We contacted James Byrne, a Fianna Fáil councillor, about this. He said no comment. Uh, Up to now, we haven't been able to make contact uh, with uh, the Mayor Fianna Gael councillor, Eileen Tully, I actually had um, the honour of uh, speaking to uh, the mayor yesterday, uh, kind of. (laughs) 
um, I got to say, hello, uh, Mayor. Um, this is Michael Reid from LMFM. Uh, I've been trying to contact you because we wanted to speak to you. And she said, and I quote, is this about the freedom of Drogheda? Uh, no comment, no comment, no comment. I was skint the last time I said something about that. Bye. And she hung up. Let's uh, speak uh, to Sinn Féin councillor Joanna Byrne, uh, who is one of uh, the 10 who will be voting next Monday. A very good morning to you, Joanna. Thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, today. You've decided uh, that you are going to vote to rescind the freedom of Drogheda from Brother Edmund Garvey. Why so? Good morning, Michael, and good morning to all your listeners. Um, I, I, I'd probably start off by saying um, this is probably one of the most emotive issues that I certainly have faced in, in seven and a half years on the council. And I think, I suppose, what has to be at the front um, of any decision that's being made next week is the support um, and the understanding that's needed uh, for victims of sexual assault and, in this instance, childhood sexual assault at the hands of one particular organisation. And, and that's an organisation that was passed with educating and protecting children. Um, so I suppose it's a decision that I haven't made likely. Um, of course, Shintane are very strong in their stance in support of victims of any abuse, particularly childhood abuse. But this issue was something that was new territory um, to me as a counsellor, um, and I felt that I had to give it the time um, to learn an awful lot about it. I've read so much on litigation and all sorts of legal things that I never would have had to read before. Um, I've spoke to an awful lot of people and, and I admit, Michael, it's probably only in the last week to 10 days that I've actually been contacted by people and I've made a conscious effort to try and make time and speak to and, and meet as many people as was physically possible that requested to do so with me over the last week to 10 days. But um, as a group, as a Sinn Féin group, um, we, we've always prided ourselves in standing with victims and we've made a decision, um, both myself and Councillor Tom Cunningham, who's another Sinn Féin councillor on Drottery Municipal District to support this resentment for that reason next week. Okay, you've been contacted by a, a lot of people. Uh, no doubt, uh, Paul Murphy, the chairperson of Dignity for Patients, was one of those people. Uh, that communication has resulted in his resignation because he asked the councillors not to rescind the freedom of Drogheda. H- have you been approached by others who have asked you not to rescind the freedom of Drogheda? Yeah, Paul Murphy was actually the first person um, that, that contacted me at all in relation to this. He sent an email a couple of days after our July County Council meeting. Um, and I actually found that email very bizarre, being honest with you. And it, it added to the confliction I was facing. Um, I suppose as a public representative, you're always cautious of politicising anything that might add additional trauma to any individual or group that are suffering. And I kind of was cautious of speaking about this publicly, playing it out, um, teasing it out, even in the media. I kind of had a reluctance initially to do that as I didn't want to play a part in in adding to anybody's suffering or pain. And that email came in and I took that email as um, somebody that was on an advocate group for victims of abuse. And it, it was very conflicting for me, to be honest with you. Um, from that point in July up until last Monday, there was actually a speaker that was on your show in relation to this uh, Pat Cusick was the first person to reach out to me. 
Um, and he called me last Monday afternoon and following that there's just been an influx and I have to be honest and say most of the the way is on supporting the resentment but there has been a number of people who have contacted me also asking me not to um, but I, I've had to make a judgement call based on I suppose the history of Sinn Féin and standing with abuse um, and I have to admit I spoke to Damien O'Farrell at Lent um, and I, I really got a first hand um, understanding and a clear I suppose um, portrayment of the pain um, that, that people are living through um, I, su- I suppose there's just this pathway being blocked and, and every avenue these people are turning due to solely down to this immoral litigation strategy that's been provided over by this organisation while it's not illegal I do understand that it's, it's completely immoral and abhorrent and it's just adding to additional pain for people that, and, and that's really what weighed on my decision it's not something I took lightly I gave it time I gave it a diligence and the respect it deserved and I'm happy enough with my decision going forward for Monday Okay uh, I mentioned earlier on there's uh, four councillors who have uh, taken a position that I find incredible uh, uh, and um, insulting to the people listening to us uh, I just uh, I've never come across anything like it before that four councillors um, won't engage in any way um, uh, Kevin Callan no comment Declan Power no comment James Byrne no comment Eileen Tully no comment um, there's a, another group that um, works with victims of uh, abuse of all ages and advocates for victims of abuse of all ages locally, and that's uh, the Rape Crisis Centre North East. Um, we've asked them to make comment, uh, and essentially, Rape Crisis North East has said, no comment. It's a matter for the councillors. Um, uh, you know Joanna Byrne as all the councillors in Drogheda know because uh, I copied you in an email that I, I wrote to Rape Crisis North East uh, asking um, why they were taking that position that it was at odds with everything that I've known over my uh, time as a, a journalist reporting on child sexual uh, abuse in, in terms of how advocate groups uh, deal with these matters. Uh, and in that email... Uh, I asked uh, the Rape Crisis North East uh, if it was that they're working against Damien and his group. Uh, And I also asked them if uh, they'd gagged the manager in Rape Crisis North East, um, Grace McCardle. Uh, There's been no response to that, um, which could mean yes or no. And I don't know the answer because there's been no response. I can only state the facts here that I wrote to that organisation asking those questions and those questions weren't responded to. Have you any thoughts on that? Look, I, I can't speak for the Rape Crisis Centre. I'm, I'm not, um, I don't have any dealings with them, being perfectly honest with you. And they do a tremendous amount of work in, in their own advocacy and their own support for for certain cohorts of people that come to them seeking advice, seeking representation and seeking support um, and I don't want to take that away from them um, the only thing I can say I suppose is I, I hope they're given it the time that I have given it and, and will come out when they're in a position to, to comment on it. Um, it, it it's something maybe it's fear of the unknown maybe it's fear of getting entangled in implications that may come as a result of this. Maybe it's fear of sidelining organisations that they may work in tandem with. I, I, I actually don't know and I, I don't want to run them down. I don't want to diminish the good work that they do 
it is unusual. I, I will say that. that and just to, just to clarify, uh, just to clarify, the, the response that we got from Rape Crisis Northeast saying it was a matter for the councillors was in response to a request that Grace McCardle could speak about this issue on the programme. Do you believe uh, that because that didn't happen, that Grace McCardle is being gagged or is there something else at play? And again, I don't know. I can only outline the yeah, situation uh, look, thus far because we haven't been replied to. Yeah, I, I, I don't know, Miss Alison. I, I wouldn't like to speculate in, in that regard. And I suppose in, in one sense, if they're correct, it is a matter that's been coming in front of the councillors um, in a couple of days' time and it is for us to decide and discuss. But in another sense, I suppose the expectations would be that they would have come out in, in support of the victims. But but I can't speculate on that. And as I said, I don't want to diminish um, any of the good work that they do and the services that they provide. I, w- I would, one would assume that they are just taking the time mm. and the diligence to, to clarify um, a statement and, and perhaps may still come out with that at, at some stage. But I, I think, um, I suppose, the silence is, is probably the part, um, and look, I played a part in this myself over the last few weeks, but the silence is, is just adding um, to the pain and the suffering that the victims are, are watching this very keenly. Um, okay. it, it's nearly like a, a, a form of, it's not the second, secondary abuse that the litigation strategy is imposing on them, but, but it is adding to it. And I, I know they are keenly watching, so I, I would urge um, anybody of standing, like these organisations that are there to support victims, mm. to offer that support at this stage. And, and whether they need to do it privately, and that's totally understandable but to offer it in some way, shape or form um, to mm. those who need it. OK, as you said, the councillors are going to vote on it on Monday uh, and uh, it, it is uh, down to the councillors to decide. It's a reserved function. Uh, it it, it uh, will take place, the vote will take place on Monday, but this could have been uh, voted on uh, some months ago uh, when a motion mm-hmm. was put to Louth County Council, but the Chief Executive Officer of Louth County Council intervened. It seems as though there's a question over that intervention and as to whether that decision to pull a motion from the council agenda was in breach of the Local Government Act because it's a reserved function of the councillors. And to the Cahirlica at the time, Conor Keelan made it very clear on this programme he wasn't happy with the behaviour of the CEO, Joan Martin. Uh, Joan Martin has intervened again. Uh, Now... It was decided at the end of last month that councillors in Drogheda would vote on this on Monday. There's been a, a gap of a month, uh, but in the last few days, there's been a le- an 11th hour intervention by the CEO. What has she been saying to you? Um, I suppose the, the chief executive has been very clear from the beginning of this that um, she was fearful of any legal implications that may follow um, if the council did decide to rescind this freedom. Now, the council have sought legal advice, I believe, on on multiple occasions. I haven't seen any of that legal advice. Um, We did ask for it in May. um, I think it was the May County Council meeting when maybe our first tabled this motion, or first got this motion onto the agenda. Um, We did ask, the Chamber did ask for the legal advice. We weren't furnished with it. um, And I believe more legal advice has been sought since and being honest, which I don't know, I can only assume that uh, the council are operating off the legal advice they have been given. I suppose where there's a grey area, um, I suppose I mean, this was part of the grey area for us as councillors at the beginning was this 
honour was bestowed on Brother Edmund Darby by an entity that no longer exists. It was the Corporation of Drogheda, um, I think was the official title of it in 1997, who bestowed the honour. And initially, clarity was needed who could remove it. It couldn't be Lag County Council, and that's where difficulties arose at the beginning because Lag County Council hadn't got the mandate to remove this because mm. it wasn't Lag County Council who bestowed it. Now, the Corporation of Drogheda doesn't exist anymore, or a district of Drogheda, or the municipal district of Drogheda. If perhaps there's a grey area in that regard, that we, we aren't mm. the people who bestowed the honour. Yeah. So are we the correct people to remove it? I don't know. OK, but I um, read Joan Martin's letter that she sent to the 10 councillors. And if I was you or any of the other councillors, it certainly would have made me question the legality of it. Uh, I, yeah. There's no doubt about that. And there's no doubt yeah. that that was the intention of the letter to ask you to think, are you acting in a way that is legally sound or if this is open to challenge or possibly uh, something other than that. Uh, it, it was a very, very serious letter uh, with just days to go. The timing, I think, is remarkable. But immediately uh, when we got sight of Joan Martin's letter, uh, uh, which was written as CEO of Louth County Council, we sent it to the department and I've copied you and all of the councillors yeah, with, yeah. with that response. It's a reserve function of the councillors. Um, yeah, it is. And I, I suppose that, that uncertainty um, has been hanging over us from the beginning in regards to the implications that may come. Is it is it legal to do? Is it not legal to do? And I suppose from a victim's point of view in that regard, um, I, what, where my mindset was, just stepping away from, from the CEE of Lake County Council at the moment, I was kind of thinking if the organisation or the person that we're intending on uh, voting to remove this honour from did follow up um, with legal action if it was deemed inappropriate in any way and did follow up with legal action personally on the councillors that are going to remove it or on the organisation. I My mindset was that that legal action could or would detract from any legal action victims mm. may be pursuing. And the intention and the focus would be nearly on that as opposed to the attention and the focus that the victims deserved. Mm. So that, from my mindset, that was something that I battled with if, if I pursued in putting my name to removing this, would okay. I be causing well, further the, obstruction further down the line? Now, yeah. I'm not sure that's mm. the avenue that the council are going, but I would imagine the council are trying to protect the council. That, that's, mm-hmm. But I haven't seen their so, legal advice, so having, I don't know. Having said that, the Department of Local Government saw Joan Martin's letter because I sent on the letter from the CEO of Loud County Council to the department. They don't seem to have any concerns about it and say it's a reserve function uh, for the members. In other words, the councillors, yourself and the other nine councillors. Now, um, as I said earlier on, Kevin Callan, Declan Power, James Byrne, Eileen Tully, no comment. No comment, no comment, no comment. Um, Which is kind of curious uh, because uh, one of uh, those councillors is a barrister uh, and would have a, a great understanding of uh, the law. Uh, and uh, if there were any concerns, you'd imagine Kevin Callan would make those concerns known publicly here or elsewhere. Has Kevin Callan given you any advice uh, from uh, his expertise on the law? Yeah, look, I, I don't want to speak for Kevin Callan either. Um, all the councillors did meet on this initially, and I suppose there was a caution amongst us all as to, again, similar to the council's caution um, as to whether or not 
this was legitimate for us to do and would there be legal implications afterwards. As we're sitting here now talking to you nearly 10 months later, I'm still not clear if there will be legal implications for us after we do this, if, if we do it. Um, it, it, it. As I said, I've no certainty either way. Um, I haven't been provided with legal advice. I don't know. I can only make a judgment based on what I feel is right for the victims. And at this stage, I'm given my support and given my compassion to the victims. And I, I will be supporting this vote on Monday, regardless of what other councillors are doing. And your Sinn Féin colleague, Tom Cunningham, likewise. My, my, my party colleague, Tom Cunningham, will be supporting it as well, yes. Okay. Joanna, thank you indeed for joining us uh, today. That vote will take place on Monday. I think there'll be a lot of interest in it locally and nationally for that matter. Joanna Byrne is a Sinn Féin councillor in Drogheda. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. I spoke to Jackie Taft uh, about uh, this freedom vote on Monday during the week and Jackie's uh, texting us uh, today about leadership or what's a real leader or what's an authentic leader. And Jackie says embracing the strength to admit mistakes is the compass of exceptional leadership. Only by acknowledging fallibility can one chart a course towards a greater truth that serves the collective well-being. Jackie, thanks as always for your message to the programme. Some other thoughts now. Um, we'd Tom in touch with us who uh, says, I-, I know I keep going on about this or keep banging on about this, uh, but uh, when it, it comes to these no comments, uh, two of uh, the people involved are unelected. Uh, And if it ends up being a tie, an unrelated person will make the decision. Uh, One of uh, the most important votes in the town and we have unelected people going to decide it. Thank you indeed. Tom is referring to Declan Power, who was given his seat by Kevin Callan, and Eileen Tully, who is the mayor who was co-opted to... Uh, the council, that's uh, Drogheda Rural. Um, somebody else in touch um, about uh, the boundary changes, John Conlon in Ballymckenney. He says, the way this country is going, we'll have more TDs than we have Gardaí. <laughs> Thanks, uh, John, for that. Uh, it certainly seems the way, uh, based on what Gavin Riley said earlier on. Uh, Jerry in Wilkinstown says, Michael, we don't eat red meat. We have fish and chicken. We have to get rid of the methane causing cattle, cows and red meat is the cause of cancer. Thanks, uh, Jerry. Uh, Barry, thanks for your message as well. He says, on serious cases, Garda recommends that offenders get no bail, but some judges ignore their request. The offender ignores the conditions and commits another crime. And don't forget that they're getting free legal aid. It's a joke. Thanks uh, for that, Barry. Uh, Michael and Navin in touch with us and says, what caused the Ice Age all those years ago? Humans? Don't think so, says Michael. Um, I don't know. Uh, it was probably something to do with the climate at the time, <laughs> as it is these days. Uh, Margaret says, why are Gardaí only allowed to use reasonable force, even when they're being viciously assaulted by thugs? They should be allowed to use whatever means necessary to defend themselves it's no wonder people are not joining the force and I can see why they're leaving the criminals in this country have more of the law on their side than victims or law abiding people we have too many two gutters 
standing up for criminals' rights while not doing enough for the injured parties. The softly, softly approach is not working and it is the reason there is so much thuggery in this country. Time for real change in the law, real power to tackle the thugs. Our streets are not safe and our guardy are not allowed to use proper force to bring these thugs under control. They are a minority running riot. It's way past time that they were stopped for good, says Margaret in her uh, text. A, a similar view, I think, uh, Margaret from James Andrade, who says throwing money at the situation is no answer. Corporate punishment was done away with in school in 1976. And uh, the only way to discipline thugs is to get them at an early age. Instill the theory that there's a consequence for your actions. There is one thing the youth of today do not seem to understand, uh, and that's uh, responsibility, I take it, James. Thank you indeed. Uh, Claire in Mead says, Good morning, Michael. Our government are letting all of the no-gooders rule the country slowly but surely all is getting out of hand. Zero tolerance should be the norm. Offend and prison go together. Build more prisons, says Claire in Mead. Well, thanks indeed uh, for your message as well, Claire. Today, um, we've uh, another message uh, from um, Philip uh, on WhatsApp. And he says, I think it's completely inappropriate for Joan Martin to have circulated a letter stating rescinding maybe ultra-virus. Uh, I think, Philip, you've seen the letter because uh, that's a, a legal term that was used in Joan Martin's letter. Uh, it either is or it isn't uh, because she did say in her letter it may be ultra-virus. Uh, uh, based on local government acts stating it is a reserved function, it appears it is not ultra-virus. A disgraceful uh, that this happened, uh, says Philip, uh, who obviously is none too pleased. Well, thanks for letting us know. As always, let me remind you, our telephone number is 0419832000. You can text or WhatsApp 086 658 Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, as you've been hearing this morning, the Mental Health uh, Commission has uh, published individual reports on each of uh, the HSE's nine community healthcare organisation areas on CAMS. That's uh, the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service. What's wrong with CAMS? Well, what's not wrong with CAMS? We've heard nothing but bad about CAMS. Uh, Actually, their reports highlight a a lot of positives in the services. And I think like any service, there's a a lot of positives, but it's the problems that are of real concern. What's wrong here? Well, staffing's a huge problem. Uh, There's low numbers of staff and it's very hard to recruit staff. Uh, In this area, which is CHO8, uh, there's no liaison service to paediatric units, no on-call services, limited or no access for people with autism, none for people with intellectual disabilities. There is no specialist eating disorder team. Uh, there's a challenge in transitioning adults, uh, adolescents uh, into adult mental health services when they become of age. Uh, there's a lack of suitable IT systems and electronic vi- files. There's problems requesting uh, bloods and testing, ECGs, that sort of important stuff from GP. 
GPs. Uh, there's a difficulty in accessing inpatient beds. There's no access to day hospital or day programs. Uh, there's no uh, external agencies such as Pieta House or Jigsaw in Louth and Mead. And uh, very worryingly, they say in Louth and Mead, there's a high prevalence rate of suicide and socially deprived population to support one CAMS team. Let's uh, speak now uh, to the Sinn Féin spokesperson on mental health, Mark Ward. A very good morning to you, Mark Ward, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, you've welcomed these reports today from the Mental Health Commission uh, and you're supporting uh, the idea that CAMS would be uh, regulated and overseen by the Mental Health Commission. In fact, you've uh, published legislation to that effect. Yes, Mike, we have. And look, the, the latest reports by the Mental Health Commission in the CAMS is just yet another damning indictment on how the mental health services are, are provided in this country to our children. Like, mental health care should be based on need and not where the child lives. And yet, you highlighted some of the specific areas uh, of concern in CHO Area uh, 8, which includes Lloyd and Mead. And that's endemic right across the state in other areas as well. So we have tabled legislation and proposed legislation it's in with the Bills Office at the moment that will give uh, the Mental Health Commission the statutory powers to oversee the 49 recommendations that they, they have uh, they, they have requested, they've recommended, I should say. Um, them recommendations were published well over six weeks ago now at this stage, and I have no idea whether the government are going to uh, take on board these recommendations, whether they're going to implement these recommendations, because we haven't been getting any indication of the government. The noise coming from government on these reports have been silent so far. Right. Um, why do we need new legislation to make this happen? Because at the moment, the Mental Health Commission, and they're absolutely fantastic, they, they have published a, a number of reports on top of the mask report that was done before, that has highlighted a number of issues right across different areas. And as you, you mentioned, a big long list of yeah. failings in your mm-hmm. own area. At the moment, the Mental Health Commission, they can produce reports, but they do not have the statutory powers to enable them at the moment to make sure that any recommendations or any changes that they see in camps, that is, at the end of the day, it's going to benefit the young people that access their service. They haven't got the statutory powers to make sure that these recommendations are implemented, and that's why we need legislation. Okay, and uh, will that uh, bring about change? I mean, if you can't get the staff, or if you do get them, you can't keep them, uh, it's uh, very difficult uh, to understand uh, how legislation or oversight will bring about a change in that. I mean, it's very hard to believe uh, that if somebody is in a crisis situation at seven o'clock in the evening or three o'clock in the morning or on a Saturday or a Sunday, that there's nowhere to go. Absolutely. And the government have had uh, since 2020 to bring in changes to make CAMS a better place for all people and access to care for all people. As you mentioned quite rightly yourself, if a young person is in crisis, Areas like your own in Loud and Mead do not have a, a jigsaw. You do not have a Pieta house. So if, they, if people aren't getting that early intervention at that stage, they're more likely to need the more acute service of CAM. So it's, it's a holistic approach. It's a multidisciplinary approach that's needed. And we need to look at these recommendations. These recommendations will improve uh, quality of care for young people, but they will also improve the workplace 
for the staff that are there, which is more likely to be able to retain staff and more likely to be able to attract staff into a into a better workplace. Mm. Uh, we've heard terrible stories over the years uh, of how children have uh, been failed, uh, and I think it's always worth saying that this is a matter of life and death and people can join the dots themselves. But we are talking about mental health and we are talking about real concern for people when they get into a a crisis situation. We really are failing young people, aren't we? We absolutely are. And I just always put from the outset as well, I've met with a number of CAMS, a number of mental health organisations during the door recess. And I have to say the staff that work in CAMS are absolutely fantastic. They do the best job they have with the, within the current uh, restrictions that they're working under. But for example, in your, in your own area, in, in, in CHO Area 8, the, you're waiting almost 55 days if a young person has a suicidal ideation for them to get an appointment. 55 days, that's nearly two months they're waiting before they get an appointment and if they're feeling suicidal. And under no circumstances is that good enough. And what you're seeing then is that because that young person is not getting an early intervention with CAMS, for suicidal ideation, they're more than likely then to turn up at, at an emergency department seeking that help and then put more pressure then on emergency departments. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, a number of things uh, that have always been there, but probably um, more commonplace uh, these days because of uh, the internet. And the internet has a, a, a questions to answer, I suppose, about how, how that operates. Uh, but there's a lot of people who are cutting, a lot of young people who are doing that, and uh, there's a, a lot of eating disorders. Uh, amongst young people. Uh, It it seems uh, remarkable uh, in this day and age that there's no specialist eating disorder team in Louth and Mead. Absolutely. And we have, in in my area, in CHO Area 7, we we have uh, the uh, CAMS team that has an eating disorder service in in Dara. And I've been dealing with families who have been lucky enough at some stage to get their young child or their adolescent into the Lindara facility, inpatient, but when they leave Lindara and they go back to, to Lowe, uh, into Lowe, into, into Drogheda or Dundalk, wherever they may be from, they feel that they're not getting any more support or any wraparound service once they come out. And then that young person is more likely to go back into Dublin and back into an inpatient eating disorder service. So we need to have a uh, continuity of care across all CHO areas. We need to see a uniformed approach across CHO areas. A child's care must not be based on where they live it must be based on the need that they have. We need to care. Uh, and it seems to me that we need to talk about it. And there are restrictions in terms of child protection and telling stories about children. There's also restrictions in terms of reporting for fear of copycat behaviour and that sort of thing. But we need to get a handle on this. We need to care about it and we need to act, do we not? Absolutely. The, the more people are talking about this, the, the more we're breaking the stigma associated with mental health. Like mental health issues happen to one in four people through their life, through their life, um, and that and that's 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 on evidence based. There are a number of groups that are co- co- coming out and speaking on behalf of children. So we, I've, I've, I've spoke there recently with, with, with parents for the reform of CAMS who have come out and they spoke on a number of radio shows and they have talked about how the impact that's having on them as a family because their young person and their child is not getting the care they need when they need it and where they need it. 
Mark, we leave there. Our time has run out, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. Mark Ward is Sinn Féin's spokesperson on mental health, and uh, that uh, brings our programme uh, to its close today. Thanks to Maggie McGuire, who researched uh, Paul McKenna was in the control tower. I'm Michael Godwilling. We'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.